working with the text was a way to kind of complicate images and also keep things, I guess, a bit more open-ended or nuanced in in an interesting way. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilo Together, we talk to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. I have some exciting news for you print friends before we kick off today's episode. If you haven't already heard, I am hosting a print event. In partnership with Print Austin, I'm bringing a month-long printmaking celebration to Santa Fe called What Else But Print Santa Fe. It will be in April of next year, and there's lots of ways you can get involved. We're going to have an international print exchange that's open to anyone. There are two juried exhibitions that you can apply for, and there will be a three-day print fair the last weekend of the month. It is all up on printsantafe.org, so check it out through the link in the show notes, and I look forward to hosting you all in beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball Textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or folks who want to develop more of their own style of fonts and letter forms. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the first edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball Textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' works, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes and enthusiasts across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Kevin Haas. We talk about what it's like to change your aesthetic signature mid-career, the use of words and art, and the fine balance of not letting them overpower your visuals, and the sci-fi dystopia in the Rust Belt. So, without further ado... Sit back, relax, and prepare to find out what exactly is Soylent Green with Kevin Haas. Hi, Kevin. How's it going? Hello, Miranda. How are you? I'm really good. I'm good. I'm so glad we're finally getting a chance to talk. I feel like you and I have been in the similar print world circles since my very first months and years as being a little wobbly, bambly-legged contemporary print person way back when I was at Davidson, probably like 10 years ago. And I know, right? It's a long time. Yeah, I know. Yep. yeah <laughs> and, that was like 2014, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 20, 20, I think I started there in 2013. And so okay. you know, it's coming up yeah. on 10 years. And then, you know, knowing your work from this, the general global about town print scene, <laughs> seeing you at conferences. And, and of course, you've been a feature on Ronaldo's video series, which is really exciting of the studio visits that he that he's been doing. And now we finally get to talk. So I'm glad you're Yay. here. <laughs> yeah, totally. So before we dive in and get to know a little bit more about you, can you just let people know who you are, where you are, what you do? Yeah. So I am Kevin Haas. 
I currently live in Moscow, Idaho, of all places. I teach at Washington State University, which is just 10 miles away across the border. I've been there for over 20 years now. I'm originally not from the inland Northwest. I'm a Midwesterner from St. Louis. Grew up there and then eventually went to Chicago for undergrad and stayed on working there, some different studios, and went on to Indiana for grad school, then back to Chicago. Just couldn't resist the pull of that city. And yeah, eventually ended up out here because of the teaching position. So, and for various reasons, have ended up staying here for all this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you said that you grew up in St. Louis. Uh-huh. What role did art play in that part of your life? A big part. I actually, yeah, pretty much grew up with art. My parents did have prints in their home, so kind of came by that naturally. But uh, yeah, ever since I was young, they dragged me out to museums, both in St. Louis and nationally and yeah, in Europe. So I was kind of taught at an early age that you're supposed to stare at objects on the wall and think of uh-huh. them. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, yeah. And were they in a creative field at all? No. My father was a historian, focused primarily in English history, the management of the Royal Navy, and lived in the UK for a bit. And yeah, my mother worked a bit as a editor for a small newspaper in St. Louis, but was mostly a homemaker. But yeah, so I've basically I've been in academia my entire life. <laughs> but because of that, yeah, I, my father's interests, he always planned out trips and was always taking us to various historical sites, museums. So I saw lots of art all the time. And yeah, from an early age, they took me down to the St. Louis Art Museum to take classes there that were for children. So I remember, yeah, making these dragons based off of, of Chinese ceramics there and things like that. So it was just kind of seemed just a natural course for me to end up going into art since I had such a, a strong interest in it and exposure to it from, yeah, throughout my childhood. So yeah, so it was a little surprising when my, folk, my parents were a little dismayed when I said, I want to go to art school. Oh, no. You're like, what, <laughs> have, like, you, what have I been training for? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. But so yeah, the Sacred were... Art Museum was, yeah, a place I went to frequently, especially as soon as I could drive in, you know, in high school. That's where I would go. I go to the art museum and I would go to other galleries in St. Louis. So, so yeah, I, I don't know. This has been my entire life. <laughs> Yeah. And so you were a kid who enjoyed doing it, it sounds like. You know, you I, I think some people have maybe similar stories and were just like, and I found the museum so boring, you know, because not every kid responds to it. But do you remember looking forward to the trips and understanding that they were something exciting and special? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. It was always fun to go. Yeah, it was really special to be able to see all these amazing different things that people created, both contemporary stuff, which I enjoyed, but of course, lots of historical things as well. I mean, I, I, yeah. (laughs) So in high school homeroom, this would have been, what, 88, 89, somewhere in there. The Anselm Kiefer retrospective at the time was uh, traveling around. And I actually had the catalog for that. So that's what I was reading in homeroom. It was like trying to (laughs) make my way through this dense text about 
Anselm Kiefer's very esoteric, philosophical, historical work. Yeah. So I guess that makes me not your typical. So, <laughs> yeah, so you are, yeah. So where other people might be hiding comic books, which are, you know, their own form of art. Young Kevin is, is working through art theory is what I'm hearing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've set the scene. We've got young Kevin sneaking art <laughs> in homeroom. And yet your parents were still surprised. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you chose art school. So yeah. for that sort of part of your life, I mean, did you it sounds like you maybe never considered doing anything else. It just was this is what I'm gonna do is go do art. Is that right? Yeah, I felt pretty yeah, committed to that early on. I mean, I certainly had other interests when I was young. Yeah. I was an amateur astronomer when I was young, really into insects, things like that. But yeah. yeah, art just seemed to be the right path and something I was very interested in and wanted to pursue. And yeah, I was pretty, yeah, single-minded about that. Cool. <laughs> and so you said that you grew up knowing about prints, or at least having prints in the house. Did you know that printmaking was its sort of own form of art before going and doing it? Not necessarily. I was kind of aware of it. I did do just a little print thing, another class that I was at the St. Louis Art Museum. But yeah, I wasn't super aware of it. But I think I was more familiar with it through various kind of historical sites where we right. that we go to, where it was kind of recreation of, of a 19th century town, and there'd be a printing press there and things like that. Gotcha. Um, I was kind of familiar with that kind of more yeah, industrial kind of technology. And that's certainly something that really drew me to, to print as well. So, Oh, so it was, it was that connection to that history and the early technology was part of it for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up in St. Louis and then, yeah, kind of being in the Rust Belt parts of the Midwest, uh, Chicago into Gary and stuff. Yeah, that kind of uh, decaying industrial infrastructure was just a big part of my visual landscape and something that really fascinated me. And print for me was also something that was very kind of connected to that history Mm. of production and the kind of shaping of cities and rail lines and so on. So Chicago was the epicenter of printing in the U.S. So Printer's Row area, which is all now expensive condos and so on. But that was where the Sears catalog was printed and so on. And every rail car, of course, was going through Chicago every so many days as it they made their way back and forth across the country. So it was, yeah, a very kind of important aspect of, of the yeah, industrial revolution and early 20th century in America. Print is, is yeah, very kind of connected to that, I think. Yeah. And for me, that was just something really that made some nice parallels for me as far as the subject matter of my work at the time and this interest in print. Yeah. Is it still called Printer's Row in Chicago? Mm-hmm. Yep. Really? Um, I South didn't know Dearborn. that. Okay. So I believe, yeah, it's still called Printer's Row area. Yeah. And now it's yeah, there yeah, was... expensive hipster land, sounds like. <laughs> no, I mean, it actually was kind of converted into loft condos in the starting and probably in the late 80s. And so when I was there in Chicago in the early 90s, I volunteered at what was the Chicago Printing Museum. 
that was in the basement of one of these large buildings that had amassed all sorts of presses and type and obscure binding equipment, all sorts of things. And so that's actually where I first learned how to set type and about typography and working letterpress. And so, yeah, I feel really lucky that I got to kind of learn that way long before. Yeah. I mean, as digital media was emerging in design, I was getting to do everything the old school way. So I really appreciate having those experiences. Eventually that place closed and a lot of the equipment got sold off. So I'm going to various letterpress studios throughout the U.S., such as Hatch, Showprint, I think, maybe Yeehaw got some of it. I can't remember mm. where everything went, but it was it was an enormous amount of equipment. <laughs> yeah. And so you spoke just kind of in passing about the ways in which that history was intersecting with your practice at that time. Can you mm-hmm. speak to that more generally? That sounds really interesting. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, just, I guess, a really just voice fascination in this industrial kind of derelict industrial landscape that I spent a lot of time exploring in St. Louis and then in Chicago and that kind of region. So I grew up, yeah, kind of north suburb of St. Louis and to get down to kind of downtown and and museum areas and stuff, you'd drive through North St. Louis which was, yeah, a heavily industrial area along the river. And so I just became just, yeah, fascinated by some of those buildings. One of them was this abandoned cement plant. And that's something I actually did a whole bunch of, yeah, uh, pieces about. And yeah, it was later Bob Castley of the City Museum in St. Louis was trying to convert it into like an amusement park. Unfortunately, his work on that ended up... (laughs) Yeah, he ended up dying there. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, because of the work he was doing there, but so yeah, there's just this interesting history there of kind of the kind of dereliction being turned into something, yeah, really amazing and positive through the work of folks like him. But for me, yeah, it was just I mean, it was really just before kind of everything became so gentrified and cleaned up. I would I'll never forget being able to ride kind of a rails to trails bike path through the north end of St. Louis through those areas that I spent so much time photographing and it just felt so out of place. Something so kind of happy and healthy and just out enjoying a nice bike ride in the afternoon going through all this yeah industrial disinvestment. And of course now so much so much of that has changed in so many cities, gentrification and how things have gone since the nineties. But but yeah, for me it was a really strong connection between kind of production and labor and ideas of progress and the hand versus the mechanical, that landscape kind of embodied a lot of different uh, different ideas like that for me and had one kind of wonderful parallels for me in printmaking in its connection to being a very mechanical and at times, yeah, very still very 19th century <laughs> process. <laughs> yeah. And so how did that manifest in your work? You said that you did some reflections on this particular, was it a steel mill that you said that was? It was a cement plant. A cement plant. Uh, yeah. You did some yeah. reflections on the cement plant. What was yeah, that it was, like? Yeah. A huge facility that was abandoned for years. Yeah. It was, so yeah, with that project, this was something I did in grad school, but yeah, I had all these photographs of the place and yeah, did 
what liquid light on paper to print the photographs and then had had found this manual from the department of the interior from like the 1950s on working with cement for construction and so had all these different graphs and things about the kind of strength and longevity of cement and curing and all these different things so it's kind of pairing all these sort of images of these sort of best laid plans, all the sort of very scientific mm. diagrams of, of kind of control this, these things and make things to last and so on with these images of these place that actually is supposed to make this stuff crumbling and falling apart. And <laughs> so it was, it was very much kind of questioning kind of ideas of progress and modernity in the 20th century from yeah okay it's kind of more of a postmodern perspective mm. <laughs> in some in some respects yeah 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 and that that sense that things are just going to keep getting better and better and yeah. easier and more prosperous that i think really is often summed up in some of these really big manufacturing plants that have since been abandoned yeah and that i think really for me anyway, that's one of the things that I find so intriguing about them is that connection to a time in which in America, and my father talks about this, my father's a boomer, and he talks about mm. he was growing up and he knew that we'd won the war and that, well, he said his, his actually, he's like, I knew that we won the war and we were all going to die in a nuclear blast was actually his, like his two like <laughs> prominent memories from childhood. But, but, you know, just that idea that you, it's like, look, we've, we've won this great war. We've defeated this evil. And now people are coming home and they're getting jobs that you can raise four children on, on one salary. And, the domestic life is becoming easier through technology as well, of course, with washing machines and and everything like that. And and then that kind of peak and fall, I think, of that ideology and that lifestyle in the mm-hmm. United States is something that I'm sure where you grew up and the Rust Belt maybe is more palpable even because you have these monolithic dinosaurs bones of these factories. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was sort of omnipresent there for me. The different, yeah, places I lived and landscapes I traveled through, yeah. That history and legacy of, yeah, in, industrial progress was obviously very failed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, see, for, for you, do you, do you think that's why you were drawn to the buildings? I mean, I kind of just went off and was speaking from the eye there for sort of what I see in them, but was so. that, was that yeah. present for you too? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, that sort of, I guess, fascination with that sort of change or that sort of demise or cultural shifts, or uh, I think that's something that interests me. I mean, I have a longstanding interest in, in kind of sci-fi and dystopian mm. films and things like that. So it, it totally connects. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really interesting. But yeah, I, it, I feel like, it would be really difficult for me to watch Soylent Green right now, you know, (laughs) because just the, I hadn't really made that connection between these imagined futures and this, these sort of sci-fi dystopian worlds and that landscape, but it's, it's right there. I mean, that, 
yeah. in that it's an amazing film. Spoiler alert, Soiling Green is people. But but you know, it's it's the <laughs> oh. I know. I'm sorry, Kevin. I'm sorry. But you know, I'm 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 sure if you're if you're interested in it, you've 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 seen the film before and the way it's like it's like it's overcrowded. It's really hot all the time. Only rich people yeah. can get vegetables. It's just it's made it I don't know what year it is, sometime in the seventies. So staring down over 40 years ago now, and it just yeah. feels so real. And when I see the things that are happening in society, it just keeps takes it takes me back to that. Yeah. So I, I, I when you said that, I was like, oh, God, soil and green. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. I mean, sci-fi, I was just mentioning this to somebody. Yeah, it's like sci-fi is a warning. And yeah, it's, it's sort of been sounding those alarms for us for decades mm. since Metropolis way back in, I believe that was 1927 that, that was made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All sorts of industrial and labor and social unrest and class issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about the use of text in your work, because I know that's a huge yeah. part of it. So we kind of we're talking a bit about some of the work that you were doing in, in grad school and, and more connected to the, the landscape of your childhood. But I know that you have this interesting between that kind of tension between text and drawing. I find it really interesting when people can effectively use text in fine art because oftentimes text becomes too heavy handed. It becomes too didactic or preachy and you're an artist who uses it successfully and in intriguing ways. And so maybe to go back a little bit, <laughs> that interest of text, did that start for you in, in the basement on printer's row with the, the typesetting or was it there before uh, that? I don't know. It, I think it was something I was interested in for a long time, but never knew how to do it or what I would do. Or when I tried to include text, it, yeah, it just, seem out of place or just competed too much with what the image was or just, yeah, it wasn't the right place for it. Yeah. With the work that's, yeah, more sort of text and drawing based, I started that in 2019. So it's still really new to me and mm-hmm. still something I'm trying to figure out. Basically, I just, I made a, 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 a very kind of decisive change in, in my work and abandoned kind of the built environment that I was so focused on for, for, yeah, pretty much all my, my time as an artist. And that just seemed that working with the text was a way to kind of complicate images and also keep things, I guess, a bit more open-ended or nuanced in, a, in an interesting way. So it really, for me, choosing text and drawing for the writing that I do, it's about kind of two different ways of understanding mm. with text. Like literally you can memorize something and recite it just like you would a poem. But with say something like drawing, you can't memorize it in the same way. You couldn't repeat mm. it in the same way. And so there are two really different modes of kind of comprehending things or understanding things, observing things. And with what I'm trying to do with it, with some of the kind of current things, I'm interested in them kind of being sort of sort of visually equal in an image, but saying different things or have overlaps that 
produce kind of random meanings in a way that things you read one thing but don't understand why you see this other thing but at the same time you're seeing the text as an image as well so it's yeah it's something i'm still trying to kind of process and deal with and figure out and work through and trying to push a little bit farther into this this summer with some pieces i'm working on so Mm. yeah and that way i think that text has such seemingly definitive meaning in the way Mm -hmm. that we perceive it and some of that challenge to take away that definitive meaning has to come a bit maybe from composition or sort of as you said finding a balance so it's not the text overpowering the image which i think happens a lot Mm -hmm. when we look at an image we naturally go to the words as the first thing no matter what else is going on in the image exactly yeah and because that's just yeah, it's the way we're wired, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The text is much something much easier to process than the drawing. Yeah, the drawing is something that kind of takes time. The text, you go through line by line, word by word, until you reach the end, very sort of, in a very, yeah, just very orderly, very natural way. We understand the words almost instantly. They're so kind of familiar. The, the shapes of the letters and everything, they just jump out at us. We understand those words and what our associations with them are. Whereas the drawing is something, yeah, very different every time. And yeah, something that can't be experienced or understood in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think that there's something in there too of using text in this way for me, it calls into question a little bit that perceived universal meaning of text, because that's something that we share, right? Is this idea that when I read the word tree, I'm having the same experience that you have when you're reading the word tree. But of course, that's a huge assumption on our part and one that can lead to a lot of sort of crumbling of communication. And a lot of, and of course, we're we're recording this as we spoke to on the on the, the the morning of the news about Roe versus Wade, and so yeah. I can't help but think about how that fits into our legal system and how the the way in which words and what they mean mm-hmm. is <laughs> truly what judges in these high courts who are deciding the fate of millions of people that's their job. So that's what they're set to do, and it's I think we think about a judge as someone who is supposed to figure out right and wrong, but that's not what they say they do. They look at these words and they try to figure out what it means. And the very fact that there can be so much contention and uh, strife and, and, and upheaval from that speaks to the very point that we think words have a universal meaning, but of course they right. can be as subjective as drawing. We just give them a different yeah. hierarchy. Yeah. Yeah. These aren't laws. These are interpretations of yeah legal matters Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and yeah obviously we've got some folks that are very absolutist about how they understand the constitution and that there's others of us who see that is the constitution and the amendments is something that should be much more of a limit living document yeah yeah. Did you know you were making such political work? Sorry, I just like threw that on. <laughs> I just <laughs> making it political yeah. without, with or without your permission. But yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I wish, I wish I, yeah, I wish I could do something like that. I wish I had the ability to do work that was so overtly political. But obviously, yeah, 
my own political convictions or somehow maybe <laughs> embedded in there yeah, <laughs> in some way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of trying to create that power balance between image and text, how, what are some of the ways you go about doing it? I see there's an image behind you. You're here in your, your beautiful studio that looks like you've divided up the letters. So not a whole word is on one line. And is, is that yeah. what's going on in the background there? Yeah. So those are some things that are in progress, kind of drawing printish things. But yeah, so it's been, yeah, kind of a exploration or yeah, since 2019 to kind of figure out different ways to combine image and text. Some things I, I started off with where I had laser engraved text that I was doing rubbings of onto the drawings other ones where I would do these drawings where the, I would not draw where the text was. So the text was a kind of an absence on the page, but also obviously very present. Mm-hmm. But they kind of kind of work with the drawing to kind of have that text kind of come in and out of, say, sharpness or how contrasty it was. So it could be quite visible at times. What I'm doing with some of these other things, yeah, I'm kind of just kind of dispersing this text across the, the say, the, the, the paper, the, the picture plane. So it's literally the words are kind of breaking down and dispersed within mm. that drawing that will happen on that paper. So the letter forms and the line work and so on will kind of get intermingled and make it so that they're very, yeah, very sort of integrated together. So it can't be one or the other. It's both at the same time, but at the same time we will read the text and observe the drawing. Mm. Yeah. So, but yeah, with the work behind me, I'm screen printing latex onto the paper of the text. So basically masking fluid that you'd use for watercolors. And so I screen print that onto the paper, the text onto the paper with the latex. And then right now I've just been doing these watercolors onto the paper then I can just go ahead and remove that latex, and then the text is white there, and can then start the drawings. So, so yes, they're a little bit of a process, ah. but uh, yeah. <laughs> Could you speak to a bit this decision or this need to change your work so much after having had this exploration, as you said, in built landscapes? Because I think that that's something that maybe a lot of artists are drawn to, but there's probably some anxiety around it. You know, what you're known for, the kind of, you know, brand for lack of a better word that you have yeah. and and for collectors who are maybe used to buying one set of yeah, imagery. Yeah. What, what was sort of the tipping point for you where you realized you needed to go do this and, and was it a little bit anxious making? Absolutely. I mean, I think, the the work now is in part about the, just the anxiety of trying to do this <laughs> in some ways and just trying to make artwork. So with some of the phrases, they are meant to be, yeah, kind of self-critical of the artwork itself or why do it or <laughs> is, it, is it actually any, of any value? So it is meant to kind of play with the, the purpose and the value of what, what these things are. But it was just a lot of life changes at the time. Mm-hmm. And so just with everything that kind of happened, I kind of took a break actually for a while from making work and just kind of slowly 
made notes and things and would eventually kind of got to this place where I was able to have a sabbatical again and, and started off with a, a residency at Gentel in Wyoming. And what was nice there is that there's no presses or printing equipment or fancy digital this or that. It's just a beautiful 400 square foot room that you have to do stuff in. (laughs) And so I kind of had to go back to the basics and start over. And so it really kind of went back to drawing and, and then, and also starting to work with text and spending a lot of time in that space, just trying out different combinations, exploring drawing again, getting back into that and uh, experimenting. And so, yeah, so it's, it's very much, even though people will say, oh, well, it's still kind of like Kevin work. (laughs) I'm like, well, yeah, obviously it's me. I can't get away from that. But, but for me kind of personally, fundamentally, there's a lot of different things that have changed and it has been kind of a struggle to, to figure out what I am doing with all this. Mm -hmm. Where is it? Where is it headed? Should I bother? (laughs) Should I just go back to to making images of, yeah, yeah, sprawl and things like that? Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I feel that part of of my job, I guess, as artist is to keep challenging myself. And I guess also, since I am in academia, I do have kind of that, I I guess you could say, buffer Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't have to be, yeah, producing work to earn a living or have a gallery that's representing me that is kind of expecting a certain kind of quality or type of work for me. So it opens me up to be able to explore and try a lot of different things. And I am, I guess, a bit restless in that way Mm. that I'm always trying something different, trying to figure out a better way to do something or a way that will work well for what it is I'm, I'm thinking about. And so this kind of definitely kind of feeds into that. And so I'm not... I wouldn't say I'm an artist that's like has a, a practice in the way that I'm like in the studio every day doing my thing. So much of it is kind of project oriented or once I figure out some technical things, then it's able to kind of proceed forward or it's connected to an exhibit I might have. So, so I'm not maybe working in maybe a more typical way that some people do, but at the same time, I find that kind of frustrating, I guess. I wish I was more sort of regular in that way and, mm. and was able to kind of produce on a more yeah just general schedule like that but but yeah I think with the changes I've made it seems that that kind of experimentation and exploration needs to be a part of it and as you said and I think most people have, who have worked with text and their artwork realize yeah it can be difficult and challenging and so I appreciate you saying that you're intrigued by what I'm doing with it and that I seem to be doing it better than others. And, and certainly my first one kind of, I guess, critique I had earlier on with some of this work was somebody just saying flat out, like, wow, it's so hard to work with text and artwork like this and just sort of acknowledging that. And Mm -hmm. somehow I've been, even though I know that that is absolutely the case, because I've certainly have (laughs) tried in the past and failed. It's yeah, just, I am a little bit surprised that I've I've been able to do this combination of of text and image. It's it again, it's still really fresh and new to me and I haven't figured it out at all, but it's also about, I guess it's about that process too, of trying to Mm -hmm. figure things out a bit that it asks maybe those questions or expresses all those kind of uncertainties. Yeah. 
Yeah. I was thinking about it. It's, it's difficult because it's so powerful. It's, it's like letting a wild stallion into your studio or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or just, and here in Idaho, it would be a wild moose. Yeah, a wild <laughs> moose, exactly. You know, just something that's just so strong that it can wipe everything else out unless it's controlled and almost trained, right, in these really specific yeah. ways. It's, it's the yeah. power that it has that you need to learn to, to wield it in, in an effective way. And 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 I love that you've taken that anxiety and that challenge and been able to turn it into part of the practice. You mentioned there's a few phrases that you use that are directly related to your experience. Do you have examples that mm-hmm. you can share? Yes, I'd have to bring some stuff up, but That's okay. I, I guess I was like, cut it out. We can always edit it too. If you want to like pause and bring okay, yeah. stuff up, then we can just be like, you can, it, to listeners, it'll sound like Kevin was just like, absolutely, here they are. So, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I guess, let's see, I could kind of read off some of the things here. So, yeah, like, like the one behind me says, images just disappear. Mm. Above that is gradients of ambiguity. The next one is tangles of indecision something I'm going to be trying to work, in, work on for a steamroller printing event this year. It's a failing, failing to disappear. Mm. So they're really terse phrases. Some are pretty obviously sort of what they are about and what they mean, but you know, something like failing to disappear. I, I, I enjoy the, it's too kind of two-sided. Is it that you're not disappearing or is it you're actually just screwing everything up and you're going to, that's it. <laughs> you're, you're on your way out. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I kind of like that. And I think that's, I, I think that's something just we all experience, right? That we want to be hopeful and excited and do well, but at the same time, we're afraid that it'll all go wrong. And sometimes it does. Other times it, it does work out. Okay. So trying to, Maybe trying to stick the work into that kind of corner at times where it could kind of go either way. Do you think of yourself as a poet at all? Like, no, no. Okay. Do you? <laughs> you know, yeah, no. Has, I, has, I know some poets. Yeah, a good friend of mine. Yeah, he has a MFA in, in poetry, creative writing. There's actually a good creative writing and poetry program at the University of Idaho here in Moscow. But I do not, yeah, ever think of myself as a mm. poet. They're doing something so different, way beyond what I can do with words. I just work with this collection of no more than like eight words in a in a in a piece, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's got to be very yeah careful and picky and choosy about what I'm what those words are how they play off of each other. Mm. But it's a yeah, little somehow, bit like poetry, but yeah. <laughs> I guess. But uh, I, I know what you I mean know. though. Like how po- poetry <laughs> is its own beast. It's its own, it's yeah. its own yeah. experience and its own craft. But you know, you do have to think very carefully and, and, and be very oh efficient, I guess, in the words that you're yeah. using. And I think that is what reminded me a bit of the act of poetry. Some, some forms of yeah, poetry. Guess, yeah, yeah, that's a good word for it. It's efficiency. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a lot to say, but I want those words to to kind of have a big, big meaning to them somehow, or that they are very open ended or nuanced in ways that are open to interpretation. But also, people are like, "What? What? What does he mean?" Mm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 and make sure that the words that are in there are doing the right job, 
right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that would be something to, uh, I would guess, takes a lot of thought and practice and care as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I start running to things like alliteration, like how much do I want to use that? So yeah, and maybe doing yeah, a series of works that just play with alliterations that deal with uncertainty and things like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you find that this new, newish, new, newer part of your practice, would you consider it research-based? Do you do a lot of external work the way you might have looked into archives for dilapidated cement plants? I mean, does it have any of that kind of element or is it really more internal inside the studio kind of work? It it has been really much more kind of internal. The writing and the images really happen completely separate from each other. The writing is just yeah, lists of, of words and phrases and some sort of make it up to the top as I review them or tweak things. A lot of it, of course, just goes to the bottom. And the images all, yeah, come from photographs I'm taking. So I've kind of kept it, yeah, much more connected to, to just things in my own life. But something I've been doing more recently is, yeah, kind of starting to collect images from various news sources that are interesting to me Hmm. and thinking that, yeah, some of those might eventually start making it into work that I do, but, but yeah, that's, that's a ways off still. I work very slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, you, I would guess that part of that is inherent process and practice, but also being a professor. I mean, that's, that is a, a time consuming thing as well. So a lot of yep. the artists I talk to who do both, it, it is that really tricky balancing act, I would guess, between both of those hats that you wear as, as professor and as, as practicing artist. It is. And yeah, I, I, power to the people who can manage to figure that out really well or don't have any <laughs> trouble with that. But I think most of us, yeah, it's just competing with time and, and energy and yeah, there's only so much you can do. And of course the universities, colleges, school education programs are always going to be asking for more from you. Mm-hmm. And so getting to kind of establish boundaries as you, I guess, yeah, or, you know, depending on your position, yeah, is, is yeah. an important thing. But, but yeah, I mean, part of, yeah, having this position does open me up to do other things. So I uh, kind of think that, yeah, making art is one of the things I do. Mm. Obviously teaching's part of it, but also doing things like curating, have been working with Edie Overturf on an exhibit that we'll be doing this winter, focus on text and image and print. Mm -hmm. It'll be at her college and then come out to WSU in January of next year. So there's one thing also, like I just did a kind of more design print project with our museum. We have a, a Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art here at WSU. Yeah, just shout out to Mr. Schnitzer for everything he does for print. Yes. Woo, woo, thank you, Mr. Schnitzer. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Every time yeah, I go over there, it's just next door to our yeah, art building. And it's a beautiful new museum that was built in 2018. And yeah, I have to pinch myself. Mm-hmm. The the amazing print works I've seen 
there. It's just, just phenomenal. So yeah, we're very, very lucky to be able to yeah, have this museum here and yeah, be able to share that with the students and then have them come over to the print studios and actually make prints themselves. But I just did a, a basically a, like a gig poster for the museum. I had a exhibition up this spring called Indie Folk that focused on kind of artists that work in this folk art style in mm. the Northwest and inland Northwest, of which there are quite a few. And, and I'd worked with one of them previously, Jeffrey Mitchell, a print and ceramic artist, and had done some print projects with him that were in the museum when it opened. And so, so yeah, so Ryan Hardesty, the director there, had invited me to maybe do this gig poster for series of musical performances that they were going to have in conjunction with the exhibition of focusing on on musicians who also kind of explore folk in different ways. So that was like perfect. Like I get to flex some design skills and challenge myself with that as well as do some screen printing, a nice big addition and so on. So, so yeah, I kind of feel I've got a variety of different roles of sort of how I, yeah, connect with people in the community and, and, make art and promote prints and and do all those different things so so yeah so as much as i would love to be yeah just full-time making artwork there's so many other things that we have to do within academia that i mean it, it it keeps things interesting and exciting and fun and i get to work with a lot of different interesting people and i'm yeah very appreciative of that yeah absolutely as you're a we're talking and kind of all the different projects and the design. I had this thought about the practice that you have now and our current, if you forgive the use of the word zeitgeist. And (laughs) I'm wondering if there's a particular interest in words and the efficiency of words in internet culture and in the way that we've really embraced that. And so sort of, and what I mean by that is, so for instance, Twitter it's now, I don't know how many characters, but it used to be less. But I'm specifically thinking of kind of memes and the way mm-hmm. that seems to almost through a, a process that's akin to some sort of evolution as it goes through, people come up with a relationship between images and words where it has to be very efficient and get the job done really well, but also to make it work you usually need both. There are examples that are just text-based, but the most successful ones, it's this real sort of pitch-perfect relationship between the two. And so I guess if there's a question there, it's just sort of, I wonder if you've thought about that or thought about the fact that maybe we're living in a time in which people are thinking about that relationship between image and word, maybe not thinking about it, let's say engaging with it. I'm not sure how much people think about memes, but there are definitely academic explorations of them and, and how, yeah, we consume on a daily basis, most of us in some form, a little bit of, of what you're kind of exploring, but we do it through pop internet culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree and identify with what you're what you're saying. Yeah, I, I mean it's it's pervasive. Mm-hmm. If you're on yeah the internet at all, you're going to be getting that all the time. And I mean, I guess I don't think about that as much. I mean, part of it for me was 
kind of seeing the emergence of kind of, I guess, yeah, more, much more accessible kind of print culture Mm. with folks doing larger editions, smaller prints, things were affordable. And that's, I think, been everywhere. It's been a big presence in Spokane, just north of me here, where there's a number of events through the organization Terrain that help artists sell work at both a store and a mall downtown, as well as a huge event they just had this last weekend with 90 different vendors downtown selling different arts and crafts and artisanal goods. And with some of that, I mean, there's just a lot of things with text in them, a lot of things that have just these very pithy, positive elements. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know, I guess I, I can be pretty positive, but at the same time, I'm I'm, yeah, well, I'm kind of an older curmudgeon old professor <laughs> guy now. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'm not always quite so positive and optimistic uh, about things, I guess, a little more sanguine. But so, yeah, so I think in some respects, some of the things I was thinking about was a, was a way to kind of counter that sort of mm. prevailing positivity that always seemed to be have to be sort of put forward that why can't someone be ambivalent or just mm. downright like negative about something. (laughs) 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 And so, I I mean, that for me is, I kind of played with that in the the tote bags that I did that that have those combinations of images and words that are meant to, yeah, again, be accessible and inexpensive and Mm -hmm. something that you can kind of carry those messages around with you. Yeah, I love your tote bags. (laughs) I really do. So could you give an example of, of one of the compositions or maybe your oh, favorite. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The one that, yeah, really like started it and kind of cemented doing those was the one with the dead plant <laughs> that says, I carry my failures around with me. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think everybody can identify with, yeah, mm-hmm. having a plant that's died, but also just this play with, of carrying one's failures with you and then on this tote bag and carrying whatever it is you may be carrying around with you. It's yeah, yeah. Who knows what everyone's story is that you see passing you on the street and what what they feel they've failed in their lives and so on. That's just yeah, part of what makes us who we are. Um, mm-hmm. And just be able to, I think, accept those things is an important part of yeah, maybe being good people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Could you speak to the experience that you have being an artist and and making art outside of? a major urban center. And I ask this because I know Mm. a lot of the listeners to the podcast in part listen to it because they're having that experience. You know, I get messages from people saying, I'm, I'm in this small town. I have a home studio. I don't know any other printmakers. I love this podcast because I, I feel like I get studio talk. It's like, it's like a, it's like a, a way in. And I know that you're someone who, as you said, you've been, you've been 20 years where you are and, and you've had some moving around as well, but maybe you could just sort of speak to that as just your experience as an artist, having had, you know, a lot of your career in not Chicago, yeah. London, Tokyo, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, I've been fortunate that, yeah, I went to undergrad in Chicago and stayed on working there. I got to work in Toronto and lived there for a bit. And so I've had those kind of urban art experiences, which are, I think, incredibly important. So I often tell my students 
that are completing undergrad program that want to go on to grad school. I said, well, you've already done the rural university thing. Perhaps you should try city at an art school. I know it's really expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, <laughs> it may be a really important experience for you. And so, yeah, so it's been, I'd say, always a challenge coming from those bigger cities to somewhere here. And it's just a struggle to make those connections. I know earlier on, when I first was here, we'd go to Seattle quite a lot, uh, was part of a kind of cooperative gallery there, and just kind of ultimately realized that it just wasn't really worth my time and effort. And certainly, it's complicated for someone in academia here at a university where we're very isolated, but you're expected to do these exhibits and the kind of standard formulas, yeah, for you start off doing more regional things, moving into national things, and then on to more international things. And that kind of follows your promotions through assistant, associate, full professor, things like that. So there's this demand, this pressure to be kind of out there in those cities and those bigger urban areas where things are happening, where you get attention and so on. But what I've kind of been fortunate to see is how that has played out in a very different way for a city like Spokane. So kind of a a small to mid-sized city that has changed quite a lot in the last 15 years, meaning a lot of breweries and restaurants and also a lot of projects that have helped improve the infrastructure and quality of Spokane, a major renovation of one of their parks that are right right there in the city center with the falls and everything. Really beautiful. But along with that has been this organization, Terrain, that has put artists first and has promoted artists and has promoted the arts in Spokane in ways that, yeah, Spokane has never had before. Mm. And so it's been a very welcoming organization. And I guess that has kind of made me sort of see a whole other kind of aspect of the art world that is vastly different from what I experienced and learned about and was kind of raised in Mm. in a place like Chicago. And so I have, yeah, appreciation for the, that enthusiasm, that positivity, that welcomingness that Ginger Ewing and Luke Baumgartner have, have made happen through terrain in Spokane. And so, and that for me connects in a lot of ways to Prince and that they are meant to be something more accessible mm. and that there isn't this huge financial hurdle <laughs> to overcome to actually own a uh, print or something. So for me, those things have been just really exciting and positive. And so I've tried to kind of, yeah, help promote what they're doing as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I think it's yeah, it's really hard just being somewhere so isolated. But I, it seems that yeah, for anyone that has the motivation and will and is kind of seeing the right people and places and things online, and so on, they, they make the connections and things will happen quite organically. I think, and so even though maybe the possibilities and resources are more limited, I think it's ultimately up to how active you are in finding them, seeking these things out and building those connections. And so I think, yeah, Spokane has been a great 
example of that, that with a really positive attitude and a lot of maybe or fewer obstacles and maybe people would have other places that you can actually do a lot and grow a lot. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I That reflects a, a bit my own experience having done work in the arts in a city like Bangkok or Sydney. Bangkok's 10 mm-hmm. million people. It's New York City. <laughs> and how there might be more opportunities, but this space for someone to build their own thing is way tighter. There's way less elbow room for that, as opposed to smaller centers where you may not have that just from the sheer ma- you know, mass of people, so many exhibition opportunities or positions opening up or connections to be made, people coming through town. That's really good in those places. But in a smaller place like Santa Fe, I showed up here and I want to bring a big print festival here. I want to, we're partnering with Print Austin to try and bring Print Santa mm-hmm. Fe to town. And everyone's so excited about it here in a way that I know <laughs> if I had tried to do that in LA, it just would have been like, what? No, I'm busy. Yeah. So it's it's kind of, yeah, apples and oranges, I think, in terms of yeah. what Absolutely. you can bring and, and what you get out. But it has to do with, yeah. as you said, your attitude. What 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 is your mm-hmm. perspective that you bring to where you are? And can you make the best of where you are? Yeah, it's yeah difference between yeah a, a very competitive yeah elitist <laughs> way of approaching that versus something that's much more supportive and welcoming. Yeah, and I think the art world is yeah based on the former very much so. Mm-hmm. But that's what's been great to kind of see over the last twenty years is how yeah things so many things have grown up that are are outside of that and don't choose to kind of participate in in making art and dealing with art in that way. Yeah. Well, I guess kind of to that end, do you have anything else in the future that you want to shout out while we're chatting? I know you've talked about a couple of exhibitions and collaborations, but anything you miss that you want people to look for? Yeah, I have work at Emerge. It's an art space and education, arts education organization in Coeur d'Alene, mm-hmm. in North Idaho. And I saw work there in September, and that's the same time as the Ink Rally, which is a big steamroller printing event that happens every year. So it'll be usually about 17 artists with four by five foot blocks doing that. So I should be there and probably hopefully, yeah, helping kind of coordinate some of that maybe this this September. And then, yeah, like I said, Edie over Turf and I have been curating this exhibition and I'll be putting out info about that in late fall and early winter since probably put together some info about that. So there's a way to kind of share what's been happening with that exhibition and the work that's in it. And yeah, I'll have an exhibition in, I guess, September, October of 23 in oh geez north of 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 portland a bit college up there but but yeah more planning on more large kind of wall text pieces for for that exhibition as well as yeah a lot of other things too so cool. so yeah that's a little bit of my agenda it's from now busy. until 20 yeah, yeah <laughs> october 23 yeah yeah <laughs> well where can people find you and follow you and be reminded of all the exciting things coming up? Yeah, I 
try to put everything on my website, kevinhaas.com. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but yeah, one of the things I'm doing is this book forums library. I've been collecting artist books for yeah over 25 years. And so I've got a large collection of artist books. And so I finally got those organized and kind of have a little library space set up in the art building at WSU. So people can come by and, and take a look at artist books, just message me and let me know. But yeah, as far as social media stuff, I'm easy to find. I'm just uh, printmaking Kev on Instagram and Facebook and all that. I don't post a whole lot, but, but yeah, I, I try to make them good posts when I yeah. do. <laughs> Excellent. Great. Well, yeah. thanks so much for, for chatting with me. It's been really fun and I'm really excited about everything you have coming up. I look forward to seeing about the exhibitions and the events and yeah it's just been really great yeah. to talk kevin thank you so much miranda yeah it's been so nice to spend this time with you especially after knowing you and yeah first yeah and kind of encountering you with davidson and so on when you were just starting off i guess and kind of a more professional end of things so it's been great to to see how all this has unfolded and and also that yeah you're working with Ronaldo just, just north of here in yeah. Spokane. So he's a, he's been a great, great presence here in the Inland Northwest. So Yes, we are thank very... You for, yeah, the work you're both doing. Yeah, <laughs> we're very lucky to have Ronaldo in the print world. <laughs> we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't deserve Ronaldo. He's the, he's the best of us. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kevin. I will be in touch. You're very welcome. Thank you, Miranda. If you liked today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with Pascal. And if monetary support isn't in the cards for you right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our great sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very best way you can support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week where my guest will be Julia Curran. We talk about death, bodies, mental health, gender politics in the print world, autoimmune diseases, the American healthcare system, our disembodied culture, and what we can do about it. Believe me when I say, you won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.